Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 183, Black Radical, with Carrie Greenwich. Hi, I'm Jake. From his Harvard graduation in 1895 to his death in 1934, William Monroe Trotter was one of the most influential and uncompromising advocates for the rights of black Americans. He was a leader who had the vision to co-found groups like the Niagara Movement and the NAACP. But he also had an ego that prevented him from working effectively within the movements that he started. He was a critic of Booker T. Washington and an early ally of Marcus Garvey. Monroe Trotter was the publisher of the influential black newspaper, The Boston Guardian. And he's the subject of a new biography by Tufts professor Carrie Greenwich called Black Radical. The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. But before Carrie joins me to talk about the book, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a Boston History Happy Hour brought to you by us. We couldn't find any upcoming virtual events in the next couple of weeks on any of the many event calendars we usually check, so we decided to host one. On Friday, May 15th, join us at 5.30 p.m. to nerd out on Boston history. If we can't go to the bar, we're going to bring the bar to you with Boston History Bar Trivia. Fire up your webcam, pour your favorite beverage, and join a happening socially distanced party. If you're in, check out the show notes this week at hubhistory.com 183 for instructions on how to join. We'll probably have you submit your email address and send out a link so that we reduce our chances of getting Zoom bombed. Don't worry, though. We won't spam you. We don't even have a mailing list. Oh, crap. Should I be starting a mailing list? Now, longtime listeners know that this is the point in an episode where I pause and I ask you to support the show on Patreon. Thanks to COVID-19, a lot of people are seeing their hours get cut or even losing their jobs altogether. Don't feel bad if you're not able to support us right now. Even if you are doing okay financially, please consider getting takeout from your favorite local restaurant, order a book from a local bookstore, or make a small donation to your favorite local history museum or a history organization. After all that, if you're still in a position to do so, please consider helping us create Hub History. Just go to patreon.com hubhistory or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Thanks for your support in this pandemic season. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Carrie Greenwich is an associate professor in the Department of Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora at Tufts University. She's also the author of Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, which was published in November 2019. Carrie Greenwich, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have invited you here today to talk about your new book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. And if I was going to hang up on you right now, I could walk out my front door and in about 10 minutes, probably, I could walk to Monroe Trotter's grave. And yet oh, wow. I had never heard of him until just the past two or three years. To, to the extent that I hear Monroe Trotter mentioned He's usually mentioned as a foil or an antagonist to Booker T. Washington, mm -hmm. but he doesn't come out of nowhere to challenge Washington. If you can start us from the beginning, can you tell us how the Trotter family ended up moving to Massachusetts and to Hyde Park? Well, thank you for that. I do believe that, that Trotter um, 
is is overlooked um, even amongst people who study African-American history and the African-American radical tradition. So um, Trotter was born in 1872, actually in Chillicothe, Ohio. Um, his father was James Monroe Trotter, and his father was born enslaved in Mississippi um, and his, in a little town called Grand Gulf. Um, and his father, James Monroe Trotter, born in 1842, escaped from slavery with his mother in the late 1840s, um, became a lieutenant in the Massachusetts 55th Regiment, and uh, moved to Boston in 1865, um, and married a fellow woman from Ohio named Virginia Isaacs. And Virginia Isaacs was the daughter of um, free people from Charlottesville, Virginia, um, who were descendants of enslaved people um, in Charlottesville and um, at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Mm -hmm. And so his parents in antebellum America came from a long line of people who rooted their radical political um, outlook within the black community itself and particularly within the fight against enslavement. And his parents, his father moved to Massachusetts because his father, James Trotter, got a job um, in the federal post office in 1865. And this was a position that was um, provided for a handful, approximately six in Boston, of black veterans of the Union Army who were given posts in the federal government. So his father um, got his job um, in Station A in Boston, which was the busiest station federal um, post office in um, the city of Boston. And he moved his wife and um, eventually his son, who was born in Chillicothe and then brought as an infant to Boston. So they made their way to Boston and they um, became part of a burgeoning black um, middle and upper class within the city of Boston and across New England um, that uh, rose in the years after the Civil War. And I would just, as a sidebar, encourage our readers, or our listeners, I should say, to go back to our episode 154, as I checked as you were just speaking, for our interview with Dr. Millington Bergeson Lockwood. Oh, um, yes. Wonderful work. Yep. And he, he discusses James Trotter's career in a lot, a lot of detail in that book. Yes, yes, yes. So when the family moves here to the Boston area, they settle in the Reedville neighborhood in Hyde Park. And you describe in the book that they really struggled to rent or buy a house here in Hyde Park, despite being, by that time, a fairly well-to-do family. Um, why was that? Hyde Park at the time, post-Civil War, was still considered its own town. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very um, a, a country town. Um, really up until the late 19th century. And so James Trotter really fell in love with the Reedville section because that's where Camp Miggs was. And Camp Miggs was where um, he trained with the 55th Massachusetts Regiment when he enlisted in 1863. So he really liked Hyde Park. He thought it was beautiful. He also um, did not like <laughs> Boston City proper, which was <laughs> known as a place of... Um, really kind of hard living and particularly for African-Americans and segregation. Mm -hmm. And so he saw Hyde Park. He decided to move there. Hyde Park at that time, the 1870s, had a small yet growing cohort of liberal white Protestant reformers. The Udor Weld, who was a, a veteran of the 
abolitionist movement lived um, in Fairmount, which is where um, the Trotters eventually moved. And so when Trotter originally came to um, uh, Hyde Park, he rented house uh, a house from a family called the Leverett family, who were known to rent to African-Americans. But a lot of the people who sold their property would not sell to African-Americans. One of the few people who did was a woman named Mahidabel Sunderland, who herself was a former abolitionist, and she would rent to people, although she discouraged people from uh, black people from buying. Um, and it really wasn't until 1873 when there was a uh, depression, um, one of the most drastic depressions of the 19th century. And um, many of the people who had purchased house lots in Hyde Park um, basically sold off their <laughs> their property to gain some, um, to salvage whatever money they could. And that's how he ended up being able to purchase um, two properties on Williams Avenue in uh, Hyde Park. And he goes on to leverage that experience in real estate into essentially a real estate business for much of the rest of his life, right? Yes. So uh, James Trotter, um, in addition to his job with the post office, and then he left the post office eventually, he invested in purchasing property um, throughout 1873 and into the 1880s. So he had properties by the end of his life in 1892, James Trotter had properties in Dorchester and in Roxbury. Um, and he had the two homes in Hyde Park and he had an additional home um, in Hyde Park um, that he owned. And he left these to his uh, his wife when he when he passed in 1892. Well, if those were in Fairmount Hill, I wish I had that many properties in yeah, Fairmount Hill yeah. today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question, but you you note in the book that Monroe and William Monroe Trotter was known, I guess, at the time by his middle name Monroe primarily, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you note that he stood out as being a very light-skinned boy. Mm-hmm. Do you think his complexion changed how he experienced sort of the the background day-to-day racism that pe- people would have experienced in late 19th century Hyde Park or Boston? Um, that's actually an interesting question. I think that um, he himself, compared to the rest of the family, was mm-hmm. actually darker than his in complexion uh, than his sisters and his mother. Um, and he and his father were both darker than um, his mother and his two sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, the f- small black community that was in Hyde Park and also in neighboring areas of Dedham was mm-hmm. a black community that was um, predominantly people of lighter skin tone. Um, and New England in general at the end of the Civil War was known as an area of the country where about one third of all African Americans were defined as mulatto. Now, what that means, we have to kind of think, um, in 19th century terms, that could mean they were actually a mixed race, or it could mean that they were people who had a lighter complexion. So, um, most African Americans in Boston at the time, although members of the upper class were definitely, um, lighter in complexion predominantly, than the um than people who were of the working classes um in Boston in particular, it was known as a city where um so many of the black community were defined as mulatto again, which is a is a derogatory term in today's terms, but was the term that they used um those who were known as that as being lighter skinned uh, were you know one third of the population so um his experience with racism uh particularly in Hyde Park was one um that um, wasn't any worse um, than his neighbors, um, but also wasn't any um, any better. The one right. thing he did have was that his father was well known in the town. And one of the things I point out in the book is that you know, much like 
a lot of things in Boston's history, racism and, and uh, racial animus kind of changes um, over time. And so Trotter Sr. was very well respected in Hyde Park. Um, he was actually the lamplighter in the city in the last years of his life. Um, and he was a member of the Integrated Grand Army of the Republic. Um, so kind of on the surface of it, and this is one of the things I say in the book, their lives, particularly compared to other parts of New England and other parts of the country, were pretty um, respected and kind of in this bubble in Hyde Park. But um, as you allude to in the book, he and his sisters were called names. He was the, often the only black kid in his class where he was, um, you know, bullied by other students for being uh, black. So it's kind of this, this um, dance, I, I, I call it kind of in New England and in Boston history, where you have um, on one hand kind of this liberal um, racial um, and tolerant history um, mm-hmm. generally, but on the individual level, there's um, often um, sort of acts of, of racial aggression and then kind of systemically there's there's also um, racial inequity. Well, you mentioned Monroe Trotter's education. I do want to touch on that because while he later in life will live for a long time in Dorchester, he'll settle sort of in the South End, Lower Roxbury area. All his formative years, his growing up years are all in Hyde Park, if I had that correct. Yes. So he graduates from Hyde Park High, which generations later is then at the heart of the, the busing crisis in Boston. Yes. But I think it was a very different Hyde Park High at the time Monroe Trotter went there. What, what was his educational experience like? So when Road Trotters um, um, attended the Hyde Park schools, and this is the 1880s, 1870s mm-hmm. and 1880s, and Hyde Park was actually known because it was a country town. It was really known as having some of the best schools in the state, <laughs> uh, public schools. And uh, most of the schools were attended by the children of um, white Protestant Brahmin um, <laughs> middle class or upper middle class um, white children. Um, mm-hmm. This changed drastically by even the 1890s, but there was like this window of period from, you know, roughly 1850s to through the 1880s when Trotter was a child. So the public schools were very good. The, um, the, um, resources within that school system were, were um, very good. He joined his first temperance league as a, you know, junior high school student. He participated in um, the yearly uh, concerts that all the school children in Hyde Park gave to the town. Um, and so he was a very gifted student, mm-hmm. which was recognized very early. Um, his name is in like local Hyde Park newspapers and Norfolk gazettes um, from the time he's like seven up until he graduates. Um, he graduated in 1890. Um, and wanted to become a minister. Um, his father, however, told him that to become a minister was to basically be resigned to segregated pulpits, um, where his parishioners would not get the same resources. And so, um, Trotter, uh, applied to Harvard. He got into Harvard, um, attended 1891, graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1895 from Harvard, um, and never ranked below third in his class. Um, and was, um, at Harvard, um, the lowest grade he actually received, ironically, was in English. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the rest of his, his career was, you know, stellar. And he basically, um, was somebody who saw Harvard as a link to fellow African American, um, elite thinkers. And that's really what launched his public, uh, political career. One detail that I would have never known without reading the book is that James Trotter 
although he encouraged Willie or encouraged Monroe to go to Harvard, he didn't offer to pay the tuition. Although I, I think he <laughs> did for his sisters. Yes, and it's one of those dynamics. I, I when I was researching the book, what was fascinating was that um, you know the traditional narrative for scholars who looked at Trotter was that oh he's like this favored son of his father James Monroe Trotter, and actually. James Monroe Trotter was very clear um, in the few writings we have that his uh, daughters, uh, Monroe's sisters, um, he had a sister named um, uh, Bessie, who was the youngest, who was born in 1883, and then he had uh, another sister named Maud. And so both of those sisters were basically adored. Um, they got kind of all the accoutrements of like an upper middle class <laughs> life. Um, they were encouraged, you know, piano lessons. And um, his sister, uh, the, she, when he died, when James Trotter died in 1892, he left a large sum of money for the girls' education. Uh, but he was really kind of this tough love approach to Monroe, which was that he was going to pay his own way um, and that any money he would get was kind of put into the bank and administered by um uh, James Monroe Trotter's wife, uh, hmm. Monroe's mother. So how did Monroe make ends meet and, and manage to pay for a, a Harvard education? <laughs> well, he basically applied for scholarships. Um, hmm. He worked. So he actually, uh, one of his jobs was selling um, desks um, in Hyde Park. Um, he lived in the cheapest dorm at the time. Um, hmm. And so he worked um, throughout his time in Harvard um, and, and paid his own way, um, his own tuition. Um, and then when he graduated, um, he being black, he found it very difficult to get a um, job that matched mm -hmm. his Harvard degree. He wasn't sort of called back by anybody in 1895. And so he went and founded his own real estate firm, um, which was very lucrative. Um, one of the, um, most lucrative real estate firms in uh, the city in Boston at the time. Um, and that's what sort of allowed him to have for a time, at least the disposable income to start his newspaper. By the time Monroe Trotter was at Harvard, you say he's making connections with other African-Americans and uh, becoming what we'd consider an African-American radical thinker. Mm -hmm. By that time, obviously, Booker T. Washington wouldn't have known about a snot-nosed Harvard kid, but Washington must have been looming very large in the lives of Trotter and his cohort. And the conservatism of Washington must have played a large role in forming their uh, outlooks. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, Booker T. Washington founds uh, or founded a Tuskegee Institute in 1881. Mm -hmm. And um, throughout the 1880s, Washington was really known as the rising leader amongst um, uh, the African-American population in the aftermath of Reconstruction. And part of that was due to I don't know if sort of the literature on Washington would, would, would support this was due to the way that Washington approached or did not approach politics. So Washington's rhetoric was that African-Americans newly freed from slavery um, needed to forego participation in electoral politics and concentrate instead on racial uplift, which is the notion mm -hmm. that, you know, education and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get a skill. And that basically that would then lead to an end to the very sort of violent racial um, violence that was occurring in the South during mm -hmm. and after Reconstruction. So that was uh, Washington's program. And through that, he gained um, a lot of support from New Englanders, particularly very, very wealthy industrialists, mm -hmm. um, who gave money to Tuskegee Institute and to um, transform uh, Washington into really um, the most powerful black man in America until his death in 1915. And Trotter and his cohorts um, knew about Washington. So they're all part of kind of this little 
small cadre of of college educated or college uh, teaching African Americans um, across the country. But Trotter's main criticism of Booker T. Washington, which as Trotter pointed out, many elite African Americans had at the time, was that he um, basically sold, um, as Trotter would say, his race for a mess of pottage, um, that he was more interested in appeasing uh, white racism and uh, the American racial system than he was with confronting it, and that he um, was more likely than not to sympathize with the virulent, um, violent white supremacist violence that was occurring across the South and across the country at the time. Um, so um, Trotter's belief was that the average African-American person, particularly in the northern cities, was being harmed directly by Washington's rhetoric. And he had a lot of evidence to support that, um, as I point out in the book. Um, and not only that, but that Washington could not possibly be a leader because he was tasked with the impossible um, goal, as W.E.B. Du Bois put it, of being um, a leader for white people about how black people um we're experiencing the world, right? And so Trotter was very adamant that Washington did that role well, but he could not possibly meet the needs and the demands of African-American people. Now, before long, Trotter's going to have some very public uh, confrontations with Washington. But before <laughs> we get there, some things have to change. So we're 1895, he's going to graduate from Harvard. 1896, he's a real estate investor. 1899, he gets married to a young woman named Geraldine Pindell mm-hmm. and moves to sub- suburban Dorchester. You said it was very hard to research their their romance and um, the relationship, or I guess Deanie's early life and then the relationship mm-hmm. between the two of them. Uh, why was that such a challenge? Well, one of the things, um, there are letters in which Trotter talks about his relationship with Deanie, um, and he talks about definitely his love for her. Um, one of the things I point out in the book, though, is that Trotter was definitely a misogynist, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, he grew up believing um, that um, the women in his life, particularly his sisters, his mother, and his wife, were um, kind of the people who were supposed to constantly support his um, his newspaper publishing. And so one of the things I point to in the book is that I surmise, and you know, I don't have any proof of this except for the <laughs> lack of information we have about her from Trotter, um, is that he really didn't talk much about his wife except for in her capacity as helping him. Um, and given the records for all women, but particularly African-American women in the late 19th century, it's very difficult to trace her her history. We know that she was related to the Pindells, who were a black family from um, uh, Maryland who migrated to Boston in the 1850s, her father um, attended Harvard briefly in the 1870s and then left and became um, um, a uh, hairdresser and then eventually a, um, a, a worked in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She grew up in Everett. She lived in Revere for a little while. But we don't really know much about her background um, or her life because she also, so far as I can tell, did not leave like a diary or her own set mm-hmm. of letters. Um, once she married Monroe in 1899... Um, and he started The Guardian in 1901. Deanie, his wife, as she was called, basically became the person who ran the day-to-day of running a newspaper, you know, like subscriptions and making sure people paid and the print and the type and all that type of stuff. Um, so my um, <laughs> suspicion is that part of that is due to, um, because Deanie herself 
as far as I can tell. Now, it could happen with the um, book coming out. People find, you know, in some archive her, her writings or her <laughs> stuff. But um, so far, we haven't found any of her, her own writings about herself. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, we have to rely on her from Trotter, who was often very sort of self-absorbed in terms of his own. Um, right, so when they have have her reflected in what he said as exactly. he's talking about himself, essentially. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the big change in 1901 is the founding of the Boston Guardian, this mm-hmm. newspaper that Trotter will run for the rest of his life, and then Maud will run after that. And that gives him the platform that he then uses to gain national prominence, to be a critic of, of Washington's. How did he and a, a partner named George Forbes decide to get into newspaper publishing? Well, Trotter's criticism was that the black press, um, which began um, in 1827 in New York, amongst free African Americans, that the black Mm -hmm. press had a particular role to play. And that was that it had to, as he said, hold a mirror up to nature. That's a Shakespeare quote, Um, basically had to be a conduit for challenging the status quo and agitating for racial justice rather than a medium to um, support the racial status quo. And so by the 1880s, the one newspaper that was still doing that was called the New York Age, and it was um, run out of New York by a man named T. Thomas Fortune. And that was the newspaper that Trotter grew up with, which had all these sort of um, very sophisticated political critiques of both the Democratic and Republican Party, of um, racial violence in the South, of all of, of, of labor, of the fact that black people needed to become allied with labor interests. So that was the newspaper he grew up reading. And then by the 1890s, um, the editor of that paper, T. Thomas Fortune, um, came under the spell, so to speak, of Booker T. Washington. And Washington uh, really uh, changed the the um, <laughs> character of that paper. Um, and mm-hmm. there's evidence that Washington uh, purposely brought up black newspapers to control um how African Americans were portrayed and to control any criticism of Tuskegee and of Booker T. Washington himself. So Trotter's first goal in becoming a newspaper man, as he wrote, writes to his friends in 1901, is that he was tired of seeing there being no independent venue that was talking about the realities of racial segregation, violence, and disfranchisement across the country. And so he wanted to create his own newspaper that would expose that. And as he said, uh, tell colored people, as he called African Americans at the time, um, that they could decide their own political destiny, that they didn't have to kind of rely on the lies that were being spouted from Tuskegee and kind of the, the broader American context of racial um, segregation and disfranchisement. I did find it interesting. You mentioned that Trotter used the word colored as a descriptor throughout his life. And, and I noticed that you throughout the book, even when it's not a direct quote, used a lot of the 19th century language around race. Was that just so it wouldn't be jarring to switch back and forth in nomenclature? Well, I really wanted the book to be about black people and race in New England. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I wanted to make sure of and point out to kind of as a sub or a, a motif in the book is that the concept of race and the concept of blackness, particularly at the end of the 19th century, was constantly changing and being framed by black people themselves. And so Trotter was somebody who believed that the term colored um, described the vast ethnicities and cultural backgrounds of African Americans at the end of the Civil War, right? He pointed out that, you know, 10% of all black Bostonians throughout his life were foreign born, right? And Mm -hmm. so what did that mean if they came like from 
Caribbean or they came from uh, Cape Verde and they defined themselves differently. So he thought that colored people was the way to define that. And and he also was very um, attuned to the fact that in addition to being foreign born, New England's black population um, was uh, had a large uh, minority of people who were of some form of mixed race or identify as a mixed race. So he really believed that blackness was um, def- uh, was defined by being inherently international, uh, full of different ethnic groups of people, and kind of um, composed of people who came from the African diaspora as opposed to the term uh, Negro. And we'll probably talk about this more a little down the road, but it seems like most of his career is spent trying to build all-encompassing organizations, sort of these broad pan-African movements. Um, it was very optimistic whether or not it ever worked out very well. Mm-hmm. For him. Yes. I mean, he he really saw um, that particularly in the American South, African-Americans mm-hmm. were disfranchised um, by 1900 and, um, uh, you know, subject to uh, horrendous racial violence and discrimination and segregation. And so he saw that black people in the North um, or colored people outside of the South, as he called them, had an obligation to use what little power they had in places like a Massachusetts or New York to um, put political pressure on uh, both the Democratic and the Republican parties at the time. Um, and he really saw this as his career progressed as something that was um, encompass all people who were the victims of some form of, uh, of colonialism, either in the Caribbean or in Africa, and that they were united in their need to um, politically agitate for their rights and for justice. Before he gets to that point, he obviously has to build a platform for himself and to create a, I guess, create a name and reputation for himself. So how does he use The Guardian to start creating a public profile for himself and, and what sort of issues is he using the guardian to, to tackle in the early years? So the first thing he's focused on and in, in the first years and really throughout the paper, but definitely in the first you know decade is enforcement of the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, which were passed um, after the civil war. And by uh, the end of reconstruction were um, nullified, uh, weakened, by state governments across the country, but particularly in the former Confederacy. And so his idea was that, you know, slavery had been abolished, um, rights of citizenship came from the 14th Amendment, and that the 14th Amendment was being violated um, by the Supreme Court's very narrow interpretation of of what, you know, equal protection covered. He also um, pointed to the 15th Amendment, which gave black men um, the right to vote, um, and he argued that enforcement of those amendments was kind of the pinnacle of getting rights for African-American people in the United States. Um, and this was at a time when um, Southern states in particular were doing things like in Mississippi, um, violently overthrowing the duly elected uh, government and instead replacing it with uh, a bad white supremacist who then in their constitution disenfranchised the black population. Right. And so he's, he was arguing that um, America actually had a piece, pieces of, of judicial, you know, oversight, the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments um, that could be interpreted um, and should be interpreted to protect rights of African-Americans and that those, those amendments were not being used in that way. Um, so that was fundamentally his focus. How did he harness um, this in terms of, of activism. The first thing he did was he was very um, 
tuned into reports from black communities about what the immediate effects of ignoring the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment had done. So he chronicled lynchings, um, borrowing from the work of Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, covered instances of African-Americans trying to continue to vote in the South and being violently repressed, um, covered instances of racial injustice across the country and across the, um, um, particularly across the, the South, as a way to document what was actually occurring um, as a result of rejection or, or um, nullification of the, the Reconstruction Amendments. And then he was very good at um, organizing and galvanizing crowds of people um, to show up and to protest in a fashion that people were not used to seeing in the late 19th or early 20th century. So, for instance, in 1902, there was a case of a black man named Monroe Rogers who was um, uh, accused of burning down a white man's barn in North Carolina. Rogers fled to Massachusetts. He um, is then pursued by the authorities in North Carolina. Um, And Trotter and his followers argued that the 14th Amendment would be violated by Monroe Rogers being (laughs) sent back to what would have been a certain lynching um, in North Carolina. And that whole case was built around his commitment to the 14th Amendment, but also his commitment to the public, the black public, rallying around a cause um, that could eventually um, lead to um, emancipation and freedom for the entire uh, race. So he's making leading that effort in 1902, and then by 1903, there is what's characterized as the Boston riot Mm -hmm. that's led at least or ring led by Monroe Trotter. And that's probably one of the things that, that he's most remembered for now, although it's really just one incident in a very long career. Yes. What happened at this famous 1903 meeting at the Zion AME church in, in Boston that we end up remembering as the Boston riot? By 1903, Trotter, the the Guardian has been around, had been around for almost two years. And in that time, Trotter's main call was for an organization that he was referring to as the National Equal Rights League. And what he wanted to happen was he wanted African Americans to, um, question their allegiance to the Republican Party, which, of course, was considered the party of Lincoln. Um, mm-hmm. He pointed out, as many Northern African Americans pointed out, that the GOP had failed um, in upholding the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He also was critical of the Democratic Party, which at the time was the party of the segregationist South. And so Trotter really called for a bold, what he called political independence, and the African Americans should vote um, for the interests of their race and their communities rather than partisanship. Um, and so he goes to New York, he went to Louisville to try to get this platform submitted before what was called the Afro-American Council, which was the nominal civil rights group run by Booker T. Washington and T. Thomas Fortune. And every time he showed up for those meetings, um, he and his supporters were um, basically uh, shot down by Washington. Washington would say they couldn't speak or he'd, he'd tell Trotter the meeting started at like six and then said he'd, it would start at three and Trotter would show up and it would be over. Um, so Trotter's um, 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 way to handle that was that he published uh, a series of questions, nine questions that he had directly for uh, Booker T. Washington, basically along the lines of how has your leadership made life better for African-Americans? And of course, Trotter would say it hasn't. Um, and, um, in July, 1903, 
Washington came to Boston for a celebration of Washington's National Negro Business League. And this was um, founded in Boston. Um, it was the premier organization for black businessmen um, in the country. And Washington um, comes to Boston to give a planned speech at the AME Church. Um, and Trotter showed up aiming to basically disrupt the meeting by asking his questions. Um, and in the midst of this, um, members and supporters of Trotter's newspaper, who were very vocal and very passionate, um, basically stormed the dais. Um, and what the press referred to as the Boston Riot was that um, Trotter was arrested um, and his supporters were arrested uh, by the police department for disturbing the peace. Um, Washington uh, tries to speak and eventually um, confronts, you know, Pepper on the on the dais and he starts sneezing. And so then the starts <laughs> laughing and all this type of thing in the crowd then surges forward and starts yelling at Washington and demanding that his questions be asked. And so Trotter for that was put into jail for 30 days. Um, for disturbing the peace. Um, he's put on trial. Um, and he emerged from that as having this, as I call it in the book, kind of this local, but also this national celebrity, right? Um, for being somebody, his supporters would argue, who had, you know, challenged power, um, been the first person to point out that, um, Booker T. Washington's politics were not accepted by all African Americans. And that, in fact, um, Booker T. Washington's rhetoric was harmful to that community. And I'll point out to listeners that Charles Street Jail is the same jailhouse where the women who challenged President Wilson on suffrage in 1919 were taken and also similarly raised the profile of their cause. Yes. So. Yes. And, and Charles Street Jail was like fa famous also for, um, uh, one of the places that Sacco and Vanzetti, um, were held in the 1920s. A lot going on in those four walls that you can now go and have a drink in I at know, Liberty I, Hotel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. And they have good cocktails. So. <laughs> it seems like his leadership during the meeting at the AME Church, the Zion AME Church, and then especially the fact that he, I think for the first time, but certainly not for the last time, spent time in jail around that incident really changes Trotter's public persona, public image. Yes. But it also changes indirectly his financial standing, the fortunes of his paper, because soon after that, his business partner decides that he, he's not in this anymore. He, they split ways at that point. Yes. What does that mean for The Guardian, for Trotter's finances, for his relationship with his uh, sort of family and inner circle? It seems like a very pivotal moment for him. Yeah, it, it was a pivotal moment. On the one hand, it, it gave him national fame and notoriety. It made him amongst um, working class black people who read his newspaper in particular, a um, somebody who people um, took a lot of pride in. Um, and it, it's it, the Guardian began to sell as far west as we know is, is Oklahoma and California. And so it distributed across the country and eventually across and into the Caribbean. So it raised his profile that way. Um, but George Forbes, who was his partner in The Guardian, um, was somebody who was a businessman. So George Forbes knew that you can't just have a newspaper um, and not manage the finances and not go after subscriptions and not, you know, accept, have these very rigid ways of, of, of advertisement policy. And Forbes left the magazine, the newspaper after the Boston riot. Um, because Forbes' argument was that the the newspaper was not never kind of a moneymaker, 
and that um, it could, was not sustainable over the long term. He was also, George Forbes was also threatened by Booker T. Washington um, for supporting the Guardian. So Forbes left. Trotter then runs the newspaper by himself with like a co- cohort of friends and, and um, supporters. But really the newspaper until his wife's death in 1918 became, um, was run and managed by his wife and by his mother and his sisters. And Trotter himself was never good at money, right? So one of his policies was that he refused to accept advertising revenue from um, skin bleaching companies or um, hair straightening companies. That's a huge form, was a huge form of revenue. And so he's basically just relying on sales. And he was also so much involved in the cause that he would argue, well, if you can't pay this um, amount of money, um, you don't need to pay for the subscription, just show up at one of our protests, right? So he was not a business person. Um, and luckily, his inheritance that his father eventually was released to him mm-hmm. um, could buy him some time. So they, he and his wife purchased a house in Dorchester, um, an area that at the time was predominantly um, white. Um, they... Um, continued to run the, the newspaper. Trotter works and continues to have his um, real estate business, but then decides to focus on the paper full time. Um, but then as the years go on, it quickly becomes clear that um, that was not sustainable because he was never making money um, from the paper. Um, he was publishing the paper and going places and pr- talking and testifying before Congress and all these things, but he he wasn't making money off of the newspaper itself. And so um, by the time you get to the to World War One, the paper was really popular amongst people who read it and people who were diehard fans of it, but it was not um, something that was going to be a bestseller. Um, and it was also not something that could compete with kind of the advances in newspaper um technology that took place in the early 20th century, right? He didn't have uh, the same type of photographs that other newspapers had. So if you look at copies of his paper by like 1910, you look at something like the Chicago Defender, the Patri- the, um, the, excuse me, the Guardian looks pretty, pretty paltry in comparison. Um, it's just <laughs> in terms of presentation. So um, by the time you get to World War One, he's really, he's moved, had to remortgage his house multiple times. He moves out of his home in Dorchester. He and his wife, are middle-aged and they're rooming with roommates um, and and with supporters rather than having their own house um, and just keeping the, the paper running. You mentioned that that downward slide in their finances and especially the move to the South End or Lower Roxbury, though it's damaging for them as a family, you wrote that it, it sort of endeared him to his cons- constituency or to his readers. And he's courting a very different group of readers than a lot of the other papers. You describe a term you use a lot throughout the book as the genteel poor. Yes. <laughs> Who do you picture as the genteel poor that are his his readers and his supporters? <laughs> um, so genteel poor was a, a term I borrowed from Dorothy West, um, her, her, her interviews about growing up in Boston. And she would say that the genteel poor were um, the majority of African-American people in the city of Boston and its surrounding areas who were, um, did not make a lot of money. Most of them worked in what we would now call like the service industry. Um, you had a small cohort of people who were teachers, um, and professionals, but mostly these people, even though they were considered, um, poor, 
by, by Boston standards and had the lowest incomes. They were also people who were very high um, achieving, right? They were people who sent their kids to dance class if they could. They were people who read um, everything. They were people who took advantage of um, free nights at the Museum of Fine Arts and people who um, really um, took advantage of resources in the city that we often don't think of that population as taking advantage of. They were very, very committed to voting. Um, so the black, the, the rate of, of black voting in the city of Boston was amongst the highest in the country in 1905. Um, and so Trotter's argument, um, like Dorothy West's argument was like, these were people who were poor. Yes. But most of them had, um, high levels of education. Uh, Boston's black community had the highest literacy rate of any black community in the country um, by 1910. Um, and um, really, their poverty came from the systemic racism in the city of Boston, not from the fact that they were in any way um, a denigrated group of people. So right, the lack of opportunity, lack of, lack of opportunity. Right. Um, and most of them, you know, were, uh, as Trotter towards the end of his life would say, you know, you had graduates of Brown university who were working, they couldn't get a job anywhere. So they were like the elevator man um, in downtown Boston. Um, and so that was the type of population, um, that characterized Boston at the time. And so, uh, Trotter, that became the people who read his newspaper, um, much more working class people, but people who, um, you know, were interested in voting, people who were activists, people who were, you know, could have conversations about, you know, the tariff policy of, of, of William Howard Taft, <laughs> right? Um, in sort of this, this way that we kind of don't think of um, that community having. Um, and so he really tapped into that community, it, um, the genteel poor. So at the same time that he's tapping into the, his community, and that his own personal finances are starting to slide. He's also embarking on movement building um, from, I guess you could say it starts with the New England Suffrage League, mm -hmm. and then that builds out into much better known movements. So what was the, the New England Suffrage League? And then how does that get us to something like the Niagara Movement? Okay, so the New England Suffrage League um, was kind of the carryover from uh, that National Equal Rights League that Trotter um, um, was the source of why Trotter um, approached Washington in 1903. And the New England Suffrage League was part of these national suffrage leagues that took place mostly in the North to try to restore voting rights for African Americans across the country and in doing that to mobilize black people who could vote, so blacks could vote in um, the North at the time, um, to mobilize that population to vote in a way that was going to um, have a political effect on the situation of racism and discrimination across the country. And so the National uh, um, New England Suffrage League was known for having uh, fundraisers for rallying around um, uh, uh, specific cases of disfranchisement across the South, uh, for raising money to hire lawyers to, um, um, you know, protests um, legally against um, segregation and discrimination. And by 1905, um, Trotter's, um, popularity, um, really caught the eye of others of his supporters throughout the North, um, who argued that while his approach might be, um, off-putting, right, his main sort of political, um, uh, focus was what the African American community needed at the time. And so, uh, Trotter was friends with W.E.B. Du Bois. They were both at Harvard at the same time, although Du Bois was a graduate student when Trotter was an undergrad. Um, mm. and Du Bois 
um, uh, gets in contact with Trotter and with other members of sort of this um, educated black um, middle class, working middle class elite group of people who were really looking for a different political alternative. And they create created the Niagara Movement, which met um, in um, uh, Niagara Falls in 1905 and eventually argued that the goal of that movement was to use um, legal um, support to um, undermine laws that were passed after Reconstruction that um, limited the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. And so Trotter was really, um, he, he was referred to by Du Bois as the John the Baptist of the Ni- Niagara Movement because he basically put the um, the platform, um, the uh, his ideas were that the the organization had to be nonpartisan, um, that it had to um, be uh, committed to activism and agitation for civil rights. As this John the Baptist figure, he's sort of presaging a national movement. He's helping to, to put it into action. Yes, but then he's not in the end leading that movement. In fact, he's sort of forces the organization to to tear itself apart right <laughs> yes um the one the one the thing about trotter that i tried to emphasize in the book is that he was and this was what his contemporaries would say he was d- despite starting these movements these little fires throughout kind of the um pan-africanist and uh, community um so that those communities themselves then changed the way they approach politics he himself was not a movement person because his personality um, always got in the way and his rigidity always got in the way. So with Niagara movement, he um, uh, was committed to that movement being nonpartisan, right? That black people should not be um, condoning, supporting a uh, the GOP or the Democratic Party or any party um, because they needed to concentrate on policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Niagara movement um, in Boston, Du Bois hired... Um, um, the head of the Niagara movement in Cambridge was a man named Clement Morgan, um, who Trotter believed was against him. Um, and Trotter also believed that Morgan was a Republican. He was, he was aligned with the previous uh, governor of, of Massachusetts. And so Trotter believed that this was betraying principles. And through that, um, then basically I argue in the book, right, throws this, you know, adult sized tender temper tantrum, um, <laughs> makes it very difficult for Du Bois to organize and hold meetings. Um, and it, that is one of the sources of the collapse of that organization. And it sounds like the, the next time that he works with Du Bois, it, it follows kind of the same trajectory because the soon after the Niagara movement sort of falling apart, they work together again on what becomes the NAACP. But then Trotter almost seems to be working against it. So he's helping to build these movements, then not really participating in them. What was his preferred instrument of of change at that time? Well, I would I would I would say that he, because he was a radical, he did not like the idea that um, civil rights groups were not le- were not led and decided and their agenda uh, controlled by African-American communities themselves. And so the NAACP was a perfect example. Um, It was formed by a group of white uh, liberals, mostly in New York and New England, um, with the express purpose of doing what Trotter wanted to do, which was enforce the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So in that way, Trotter won that argument because by 1909, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment was considered by reformers as, okay, this is the, this is where our fight has to lie. But Trotter's problem with the NAACP was that it didn't have black leaders. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until after World War I that it even had branches in the South. 
Um, and it was really a, a, in terms of the political trajectory, many African Americans, um, but particularly Trotter, saw it as very elitist, right? Um, so it really was focused on using, um, the legal system to combat segregation and disfranchisement. And that's a slow process, as we know, right? So the mm-hmm. NAACP's program was that they would choose cases that they believed they could win to challenge local uh, laws that um, were discriminatory. And so Trotter's argument was that in doing that, the NAACP was far removed from the everyday existence of African Americans, that it was too conservative, and that really until the late 19-teens, it didn't have black leadership. Um, and so that was his, his criticism of the NAACP, and he created the Negro Independent Political League um, to counter that and basically argued that they were the ones who were going to be led by black people. They would have um, people in black communities elected. They would decide what it was that they were fighting for. They would raise the money themselves. And he would argue that white people could join. So one of his big... Um, um, Supporters were um, uh, Tom Milholland, who was a um, a um, activist, white activist out of Alabama. They could join. Um, John uh, Honey Fitz, um, the Kennedy's, you know, patriarch. He was mm-hmm. a big supporter of that group of Trotter's group as well. So they could join and they could support it, but they couldn't decide the direction of it. And so um, that really, if, if we look at, in addition to his his prickly personality and his you know mercurial nature. Um, Ideologically, that was really something that was constant. Was he did he he wanted black communities themselves to be able to control the terms of their own um, um, appeals for justice. Although he's not active with the organizations that we remember today, like the NAACP, for for very long, he is using his membership and leadership in these other more radical groups to maintain a very high level of visibility. Because we know he's going to be a critic of Teddy Roosevelt. And President Taft, and then he's he's going to have a lot of back and forth and and personal audiences with President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. How does Monroe Trotter go from being an an early, albeit uneasy, supporter of candidate Wilson to being <laughs> one of the biggest critics of President Wilson? Oh, so it's a good good question. I mean, Woodrow Wilson. Um, was a Democrat. Woodrow Wilson was governor of New Jersey uh, before he became president. Woodrow Wilson, um, however, before he ran for president, um, was somebody who um, had not yet, uh, did not have a record of the virulent type of public federal anti-black legislation that, say, a Roosevelt or Taft did. So Trotter's big criticism of Roosevelt was with the um, the uh, Brownsville incident that took place in Texas, also with uh, Roosevelt's um, writings about African-American soldiers during the Spanish-American War, and all these types of things. Um, and for Roosevelt's support of um, of uh, Southern states that did not prosecute against lynching. So by the time Woodrow Wilson was running for president, Trotter, and as I put out in the book, other black northerners like Du Bois were weary of the GOP and were really arguing that black people needed to vote locally, at least, um, for um, those who supported black civil rights. And if that was not Republicans, they should vote Democrat or if it was, you know, a worker men's party or whatever party had you. So by the time Woodrow Wilson was running for president, Wilson himself um, accepted overtures from African-Americans in New Jersey. 
who approached him as governor and praised him initially because um, Woodrow Wilson was involved in um, preventing a lynching that was about to arise in New Jersey in 1910. So um, he had kind of a support of local black support which is funny now when we kind of look at his his statements about African-American people, but that was that was him. And we have to think of in the time. You think of the spectrum of, of what white people were doing in general, and maybe it didn't seem so bad against that background. Yes, against that background, exactly. And so Woodrow Wilson, um, Trotter and his league approached Wilson and actually met with him. And to give an idea of how um, revolutionary that was seen at the time, Wilson was actually threatened by Southern Democrats for agreeing to meet with with black northerners. So Yeah, that that was going to be my next question. Yeah. How typical would it have been for a presidential candidate to meet with members of the black community at that time? It's not that it didn't happen, it's that in when Trotter met with Roosevelt, he's uh, meeting with him as a representative of an all black group. So he was coming in and saying, we are a black group of people, we want to meet with you. And Woodrow Wilson, unlike everybody else who would kind of just ignore him, says, okay, and has them meet with him. Um, they meet with him and Woodrow Wilson basically says, well, I, you know, I don't know what I can do for um, race relations, but I will, I will do my best to be fair. And in the context of 1912, 1916, that was a pretty uh, bold statement uh, to say, because this was at a time when most um, Republicans and all Democrats were arguing that, you know, racial segregation was not harmful, uh, racial discrimination and disfranchisement um, were were not problems. So Trotter rallied for the first time and only time in his life. He supported, publicly supported a presidential candidate. He had, um, he urged black Northerners who were considered a swing vote at the time to rally around Woodrow Wilson and Woodrow Wilson won the presidency. And he won by um, margins um, in northern states where the Democrats had not won um, national elections in years. So um, Trotter then takes that as a sign that the black community should confront and hold the Wilson administration responsible um, because they were responsible for getting Wilson elected in the North. And so um, when Woodrow Wilson, almost immediately when he entered office in March 1913, when Woodrow Wilson um, immediately segregates the federal government, was one of the first things he did within three weeks of taking office. Um, And also Woodrow Wilson appointed avowed white uh, supremacists and uh, white Southerners who approved of lynching to his cabinet. Um, Trotter goes and, and confronts him in, in his office twice. Um, and I argue in the book that the significance of this was much more than merely, um, you know, getting some press out of it. Um, Trotter really mobilized and galvanized a generation of black people who, um, we're not used to seeing African-American people boldly confront elected officials about their dismal racial policy, right? Um, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago and somebody asked, well, that seems pretty amazing now because you don't even see that now. Like a group of people showing up and confronting an elected official, never mind the president of the United States, and saying, this is your record on this, and this is how it has affected us, and what is, what, why are you, <laughs> what, how do you answer that, right? right. Um, and when he did that, that really gave him a level of celebrity amongst working class black northern northerners, um, and respect across the African diaspora, because it was the first time anyone had done that, and for, you know, I would argue during that time was the only time somebody had, had approached the president on on his racial record in that way. 
So it sounds like Trotter then uses the fame or the notoriety he gains for those confrontations to help build a new uh, National Race Congress. And then he uses that group to put pressure on Wilson's reelection campaign. What, what were they asking for in the 1916 election? The Liberty League, as they eventually called themselves, were really arguing that um, – again, for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to be supported, but specifically for some type of federal anti-lynching legislation, um, because lynching, despite sort of declining slightly in the early 1900s, was on the rise in the era of World War I. And so their argument was that, particularly as uh, Europe devolved into war and the United States was remaining neutral, that this was a time to completely remake what kind of democracy in the world would look like. Um, and that in addition to self-determination for, um, you know, those in Eastern Europe, um, in, uh, in the beginning of World War I, that African-American communities needed self-determination through the vote and also through federal protection against lynching and racial violence. Um, although, of course, Woodrow Wilson um, did not sort of heed that call. And Wilson actually <laughs> was, was you know, a big supporter of uh, D.W. Griffith's film, uh, The Birth of a Nation, which came out in 1915. Um, and Trotter's argument um, was basically that um, that film encapsulated kind of what life was like for African-Americans during the Wilson years. And that um, he and his Liberty Liberty League argued that um, in order to seek true racial freedom, but also racial justice um, was for um, legislation, but also for organizing African-American people across the diaspora. And I'll just pause to shamelessly plug one of our past episodes for our listeners who haven't heard it to check out episode 121, which is all about, Trotter's fight against birth of a nation in Boston. So shameless plug on my part. Yes, no problem. <laughs> After this shameless plug, I'll also give a fair warning to our listeners that there's going to be a lot of sad and disappointing news about the life of Monroe Trotter from here on out, because it sounds like the 1916 campaign and the Liberty League are kind of the, the high point of Trotter's influence, his popularity, sort of his national reach. The Guardian is hitting hard times at this at this point. What do you think was going wrong, and and why was Trotter personally enjoying more success than the paper at that point? Um, well, I would say that the ninth by the time you get to World War One, there is definitely a shift in the notion that newspapers, particularly black newspapers, in order to gather the type of audiences that would keep a paper alive, had to be um, more than what the Guardian was, which the Guardian was. Um, local, it was satirical, as Du Bois would say, it was fiercely political. Um, people who read it loved it, and people talked about it, and it was good at stirring up uh, conversation and rallying people politically. Um, but it was not, you know, like the Chicago Defender, which had, you know, uh, short stories and photographs in it and, you know, cartoons and that type of thing. Although Trotter did have cartoons, they were not, you know, uh, playful cartoons. They were, you know, political um, cartoons against his <laughs> right, enemy. Right. Um, and so by the 19-teens and 1920s, as I say in the book, the, poli the uh, political culture newspapers had fundamentally changed. And he did not change with those things. So um, that was one of the problems. The other problem was that even though his personality, his, his confrontations um, made him somebody who was difficult to get along with and never became a movement person, 
all the things that Trotter argued for eventually became mainstream civil rights arguments by the 1920s. So a, na- a federal anti-lynching bill, um, the Dyer anti-lynching bill submitted in 1920s with help from Trotter. That became kind of mainstream accepted by um, uh, white reformers. Um, his notion that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment had to be enforced that became, by you know, the 1920s, the rhetoric of the NAACP. The notion that black people needed to be have a say in how it was that they um, became free that became, um, you know, the the rhetoric of of black both black nationalists and the rising sort of black um, social socialist movement in New York City. So everything that he argued for eventually became mainstream, which is kind of the tragedy and the triumph of his life. The public and um, activists eventually came around to what Trotter was saying. Uh, Trotter himself, however, was um, definitely at the vanguard of that. And so at his time, he was not recognized as changing the landscape as much as he actually was. Now, as we get into the teens, Monroe Trotter had a series of health problems that you, you diagnose as being psychosomatic. What do you think was going wrong with him uh, sort of 1915, 1916? Well, I, I say in the book that I would say um, I'm not a doctor, so I couldn't say, you know, that he there was nothing wrong with him. I would say that throughout his life, he and particularly towards the end of his life, he had all of these ailments um, that developed. So one of them is he gets like a, a, a boil on the side of his neck that has to be lanced. He suffered um, from the time he was a child. He suffered from um, lung problems and breathing problems. Um, and he was he was born prematurely. Um, but. Throughout the rest, throughout his life, he was definitely seen as somebody who was very, very moody, um, and somebody who often, at these moments, would have, um, you know, physical ailments. Um, that when you're reading the historical record, it's like, is this a real thing or is it not a real thing or what's what's actually going on? And then suddenly he'd just like bounce back out of it and be um, his his old self. And so part of the source of what I argue in the book, the source of some of his, um, his you know, inner turmoil was that the paper was, was not making money. Um, in 1918, his wife, um, Dini, died of the Spanish flu or the uh, epidemic of 1918. And she was not expected to die. So she was um, actually uh, came down with the flu. He checks in with her. She says she's doing fine. He goes to give a speech in Chicago on the train on the way back. He finds out from somebody else that she died. So very dramatic moment. Um, she basically ran the newspaper. So now he's alone running the newspaper. And also he he never had any children. Um I think he entered a period of his life, um, again, based on the historical record, where that isolation um, or his career was very isolating. Um, so he wasn't into boys who had kids and a wife and like a, a community, although he had all these supporters. Um, and so by the 1920s, um, even though his rhetoric and his politics um, were really taken up by younger activists in Harlem and New York and Jamaica and, and the Caribbean, um, he really was considered somebody who was like a relic of the past um, and um, not somebody who a lot of people were close to. I'm just going to back up to something you glanced over um, because I've been for very obvious reasons, thinking a lot about the 1918 flu yes, recently. Yes, 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 yes. And I walk in uh, the Fairview cemetery. It's just very close to my house. So I walk in the cemetery sometimes and I look 
I've just really been taking stock of all the 1918 inscriptions recently, which Deanie is, is one. What was she doing at the time she got exposed to the flu? What, what sort of work was she doing that led her into to that exposure? So one of the um, things that I delighted in when I was doing research for the book was finding out more about her life, trying to find out more about her life independently of Monroe. So even though Trotter's rhetoric was that uh, Deanie was like his helpmeet and she was running the paper, there's actually evidence <laughs> that by 1907 – uh, Deanie sort of had her own public career in service. Uh, at the time of her death, she was um, at the pinnacle of that because she was working for the uh, Soldiers' Comfort Home, which was making um, baskets and um, providing pen pals and providing support for uh, both soldiers and for civilians who were stationed um, in um uh, Air Massachusetts at the um, the um, military base there, but also people who were suffering from the flu. And so she um, serviced both or helped both um, black and white soldiers, but she was particularly um, concerned with young black soldiers who were sent to train in Massachusetts, and this was their first introduction to Boston. So she was actually exposed to the disease because she made all these gift backs, baskets went up to air from Boston to personally hand, um, give them to young people. Um, she also, uh, before her death, was very much involved in overturning the conviction of a black man who was accused of murder in the 1870s and personally corresponding with the governor, various governors to get him released. So she had sort of her own career, um, even though she was um, running the Guardian and helping her husband. And so that career actually is what um, sadly led to her death. She's exposed to the flu. She came back from air um, sick. Um, she was one of the few people who imme- uh, immediately seemed to recover Um Right, tells her husband, uh, everyone tells her uh, Trotter that she's going back out to work in the community, and then she fell ill again and died um, pretty quickly within about two weeks. Um, so pretty tragic, and given our current circumstances, you know, the, the flu and the plan- pandemic, and, um, you know, that for Trotter, he definitely was not, it was not an expected death, um, mm-hmm. particularly given um, that she was, it was said that she was recovering. I was really struck by how quickly... Monroe's back to work, and he seems to really throw himself yes. into his work at that point. Although maybe not into the Guardian fully, because it continues its its financial decline. Mm-hmm. But he is really taking advantage of what a lot of radicals see as the the opportunity that the end of the Great War is going to present. And we spend a, a fair amount of time in the book discussing this resolution that he and and some of the groups he's allied with are trying to put before the peace negotiators in, in Paris. Will you tell the listeners a little bit about that resolution and then what it took to get Monroe Trotter to Paris and what Paris was like for him? <laughs> okay, so he's, he's part of this this National Liberty League. It was organized by he and a uh, radical uh, Caribbean immigrant named Hubert Harrison in, in um, Harlem, New York. And basically their argument was that the war was not a war that was fighting for um, liberty of African-American people or of the African kind of colonized world, but that the moment uh, was a moment when African-Americans and colonized peoples um, could uh, present their demands before the world. The world, um, And he and the Liberty League met in Washington, D.C. to rally um, um, 
for provisions within the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that would lead to a decolonization um, across the world and also make uh, civil rights of, of people around the world a priority of um, whenever the war ended. Um, with the League of Nations, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson um, creates sort of this idea of a new freedom, right? The fact that um, in Woodrow Wilson's imagination, this would be a new world order. Um, and at the Paris Peace Conference, um, the League of Nations um, was proposed, as, as, as we all know. And so Trotter's idea was that African-Americans and African-descended people had to be at the table to dismantle um, Western colonialism um, and um, exploitation of, of colonized people and put the demands, as he said, of the colored people in the United States before the world. Um, and at the time, the State Department refused to submit um, uh, passports to African-Americans um, because the argument was they were um, seditious in the way that they were critical of the American policy. So only two African-Americans were given an official passport, W.E.B. Du Bois, who went on behalf of the NAACP to the Pan-African Congress, and Robert Moton, who was the president of Tuskegee. Um, and neither Du Bois nor Moton addressed kind of the horrendous conditions that black soldiers faced, both in the United States and in Europe, or in immediate decolonization of um a majority of the world. And so Trotter and the Liberty League decided that Trotter would go and present demands, as he says, the demands of the colored people himself to um, the Paris Peace Conference. And to do this, he got, um, he and the Guardian and other newspaper allies had a fundraiser um, where African Americans could donate money to pay for his travel to uh, Paris. Um, amazingly, um, this was a uh, black effort. So black people from as far away as California and Washington State donated money. They managed to pay for his uh, travel. Um, but when he goes to get the passport, of course, the State Department won't allow him to go. Um, and he immediately disguised himself um, as a chef aboard a ship in New York City, shaved his mustache off, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm still amazed that that actually worked. And then um, <laughs> then, then uh, got on the boat and sailed for Paris, arrived in Paris just when the peace, um, uh, the Versailles conference was ending, uh, but managed to get the demands put into the Euro European newspaper. So um, actually Trotter's demands, the demands of the colored people, as it was called, were featured in French newspapers and English newspapers, right? And for, the, for some of the first time, Europeans and the Allies began to see um, how much Woodrow Wilson's administration was um, um, denigrated and uh, despised by African Americans in the country, which was sort of an eye-opening thing to many people in Europe at the time. Um, and that, you know, these demands for decolonization and for civil rights um, were um, being demanded by Black people in America as well as in the colonized world. Um, he got to Paris um, late um, he is celebrated by um, various operatives in Paris, but then he is stuck there. He couldn't get back. And so there's a fundraiser to bring him back from Paris uh, to Boston um, in 1919. Um, and he's, he becomes, again, once, a, once again, a celebrity amongst um, working class genteel poor across the country. 1919 is a 
it's a pivotal point because we have the Red Summer, mm-hmm. May Day Riot in, in Roxbury. Yes. All these things are happening almost simultaneously. So this is backlash against anything red in America, in Boston in particular. Well, that doesn't phase Trotter. What does that mean for, for Trotter and his radicals? How are they continuing forward in, in the face of this backlash? He and his supporters, um, and they included a network of mostly uh, Caribbean-born radicals in both uh, New England and New York. Um, they really saw this as a moment when, um, given the um, the failed promises of May Day and labor reform and um, the violence of Red Summer, that this was an opportunity for them to uh, mobilize uh, people um, and to ally themselves with new ways of looking at the world, whether that was, um, um, you know, socialism or whether that was communism or, or whatever it looked like, that this was a, ch- a chance to galvanize that. So Trotter became a mentor to A. Philip Randolph, who was organizing the sleeping car porters down in New York City. He became, um, uh, again, allied with various Caribbean lad- radicals like Cyril Briggs. And he became somebody who his, it went in contact with those younger radicals, began to argue that um, using arms of self-defense was the best way for black communities to defend themselves against the rising tide of of, um, violence that was occurring in the aftermath of World War um, I. And so by 1920, when um, the the, uh, beginning of the 1920s, Trotter was somebody who really began to see that Black struggle for civil rights in the United States, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, that those were still the goals, but that the way to get those goals was through um, um, self-protection for the African-American community and also through um, um, a combination of, you know, Garveyism, uh, socialism, um, and, uh, you know, Marxist political thought at the time. Um, by 1921, uh, by the early 1920s, he found something called the African Blood Brotherhood, which was a secret organization um, that um, basically called upon black communities to arm themselves against um, racial violence that was occurring at the time, the Tulsa race riots in particular in 1921. Um, he called for um, a strengthening of, of labor um, reform and a, a transformation of kind of labor um, in Boston and across the, across the country. Um, and he continued to kind of to, to argue against, um, you know, the repression of um, black uh, workers and tenant farmers across the South. And it keeps pushing for the dire anti-lynching bill. Yes, the dire anti-lynching bill, which which failed. But um, <laughs> in there, in it, despite failing, the dire bill really changed the conversation about um, lynching. Uh, the United States, until recently, had never passed any form of anti-lynching, anti-mob violence um, um, national legislation, and um, the dire bill was the first to go before the House and the Senate and to have support um, of a large minority of of um, legislators, right? So in other mm-hmm. words, it kind of pushed the conversation towards um, lynching being black people's fault, right, which was kind of the rhetoric at the time, to lynching being something that was um, um, illegal. And should be um, and should be dealt with. Um, of course, the bill itself did not pass. But by the 1920s, 
the idea that lynching um, was just, you know, something that was normal um, by the 1920s in other parts of the country, outside the South, um, you know, lynching was, was frowned upon. From a 2020 lens, it's hard to imagine that a wide swath of the country at one point just believed that because black people were had these rapacious animalistic appetites that mm-hmm. lynching was just an, a normal everyday response to that. Yes, right. Um, yeah, and I mean, and, and if we're evaluating Trotter's career, I mean, he was from the beginning, from the 1890s, saying, along with Ida B. Wells, right, lynching is a crime. Um, it um, is used to terrorize the black community. It occurred much more often than people at the time, or some people even now, would like to admit that it occurred. Um, and that there was an easy way to combat it, which was um, using a federal law against um, those types of crimes and prosecuting um, towns and cities that failed to protect people who were accused of a crime. Um, so that was pretty, that was one of, of, of all of Trotter's. Um, movements, that was the one that by the time he died in 1934, that became um, the rhetoric of people who were, um, of both parties, um, who were against lynching. Um, whereas 1901, you couldn't really say that your average person, even in Boston, believed that number one, lynching was a problem, and number two, if it was a problem, that, you know, it was a crime. So in this period, sort of from his return from Paris through the ultimate failure of the anti-lynching bill Trotter's becoming more and more of a radical embracing at least the, the rhetoric around using arms for, for black self-defense reacting very much to this um, wave, this reactionary wave that starts in 1919. But personally, you write, he's becoming through the same period, much more pessimistic. And then you, you say that observers would note that he's disheveled. He's becoming more withdrawn from polite society What's happening to his mindset, do you think, uh, after the defeat of the Dyer Bill? Again, because he didn't keep a diary, it's kind of hard to, to definitively say, but I, I propose in the book that given the evidence that we have, the death of Dini, his mother died in 1918 as well, um, he's basically broke. So he will spend the rest of his life living and boarding with supporters as opposed to being in his hmm. own house. Um that in and of itself was a strain. The other thing that was really disappointing to Trotter was that um, seeing how, despite the fact that the consciousness of African-American people had shifted, um, that lynching was still a problem, right? Black people were still disenfranchised. And not only that, he started to see um, um, a lot of that virulent racism arise in Boston when it hadn't arisen in the same way before. So um, Boston was segregated. Yes. Did black people have the same economic opportunities in terms of jobs? Um, No, but Boston um, given its history had a period from roughly 1880 to 1920 where even the most conservative of conservative white person in Massachusetts would say, you know, segregation is not good. And so we're going to pass this, an anti-segregation law, which Massachusetts did. It was one of the first states to do so after the Civil War. Um, by 1920, there was a shift generally in the culture, but also in Boston generally, where that old guard kind of reform, neo-abolitionist crowd um, died out or uh, <laughs> became less <laughs> concerned about 
um, civil rights. And so what you were left with was really um, a lot of lip service in New England to um, the liberal past, but also at the same time, um, lack of support for civil rights measures locally even though Massachusetts politicians were very critical of the South and, and racism on a national scale. So, for instance, um, Boston, by the 1920s, there's a national resurgence of the Klan, and New England had a resurgence of the Klan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the 1920s, the uh, Boston City Hospital um, was still segregated. Its nurses training school, which was one of the best in the country, uh, would not admit um, African-American nurses to be trained. Um, and the response to this, even by people who were supposedly um, allies of the black community, was that, well, you know, we didn't really know it was segregated. Um, you know, it's really segregated because black and white people don't get along. You know, th- that, that type of rhetoric. Um, you also had, by the 1920s, a new crop of less uh, radical leaders arise in Boston who really began to argue that what Boston needed um, to get rid of racial inequity was, you know, um, the Urban League or a spread of the the NAACP. And Trotter, given his background, didn't believe that those things were speaking to the people. He really believed that those were um, organizations, however valid, that um, were not, you know, mobilizing your average person. Um, and then he, he really was, you know, became very bleak with the onset of the, um, the Great Depression. So Massachusetts, we, we often miss that Massachusetts and the Great Depression had um, uh, suffered and was one of the states, uh, northern states in particular, that suffered the most in terms of losing jobs and, and losing access to, um, to what had been, you know, a 40-year run of, give or take, you know, economic um, expansion across the Bay State. And so this was devastating. For the black community, it was um, doubly devastating. So black businesses, um, you know, disappeared, never came back. Um, you had a rise in um, homelessness within the black community, hunger, all those types of things that was even worse than what was occurring in the white community across the city. And um, with that, he really, um, you know, he, he started to see kind of this level of despair um, that many people were seeing in the in the uh, Depression. Um, he had once been allied with James Michael Curley, the famous ma- mayor. Um, he had a falling out with Curley over Curley's racial policies, but he was also disappointed that Curley um, was slow to um, um, get Massachusetts allied with the New Deal programming that began um, uh, or was talked about when Roosevelt was running for president for the first time. So Trotter had a lot to be disillusioned about. Um, One of the things he discovered um, was this rise in segregation across Massachusetts uh, locally. In other words, whites deciding like in towns or in banks that they were going to have segregation as policy and Mm -hmm. there not being the same type of legislative response as had occurred before. Um, And basically Massachusetts argument being much like um, many Massachusetts liberals can argue now, oh, where we might have racial issues, but they aren't as bad as the rest of the country. So, um, (laughs) you know, uh, we don't need to fix them. And so really, that was a shift in Trotter's experience with the city and with New England. Um, And he he began to really despair of the fact that it appeared as though, um, you know, as much as things had changed, they hadn't changed in the way that he would have suspected. He's dedicated his life, his fortune, his 
good name to this cause and maybe it hasn't moved as far as he'd like it yeah. to. Hey listeners, this is Jake of the Future from the editing room. Over the next few minutes, you're going to hear Carrie and I both reference Dini a few times when in fact we should be speaking of Maud, Monroe Trotter's sister, Maud Trotter. Sorry about that. So it seems like just a decade from sort of the mid twenties of professional setbacks, personal tragedies, political defeats, everything is going wrong from the mid twenties to the mid thirties. At some point, we have to discuss April 7th, 1934, Trotter's 62nd birthday. Every other profile that I've read of William Monroe Trotter treats his death as this big unsolved mystery, Mm -hmm. a lot of speculation about what might have happened. But when I read your treatment, it seems like you've made up your mind what happened. Um, Yeah, and I will will say – Based on all of the newspaper ev- evidence at the time, the writings between his family members, Dini in particular, and um, the newspapers when he died, and um, the uh, medical report that came out um, when he was picked up, um, there is ample evidence that um, he jumped from the roof. What were the circumstances of his death for folks who haven't read so the book? So, the, the circumstances of his death were that April 7, 1934 was his 62nd birthday. Um, right before this happened, throughout 1933, he was sick. So, he suffered from a um, a very painful cyst that, again, uh, grew on his neck. Um, he uh, moved into a, um apartment um, of one of his supporters where he shared um, roughly, you know, two, maybe 1,500 square feet with a mother, her grown son, and various people who lived in the house. So he's in his 60s. He's living basically as a, with roommates um, at the mm-hmm. time. His mother is dead. Um, both of his sisters have lives of their own. Um, and then there's the Scottsboro case in Alabama, um, which he rallies around supporting um, the um, vilification of Scottsboro boys, but that um, that was really seen as this watershed moment of will those young men be freed or will they not be freed? So all of this is happening at the same time. And then in early 1934, um, he gets word that the newspaper is so in such dire straits that it cannot be printed, right? That the, all the printers he's used in the past and he's like, has all these IOUs and debts that he pays them, they refuse to get it printed. Um, and so the paper itself um, is collapsing and it actually did not, it, it appeared, but then it like didn't appear and it was like a rerun of other papers. It's, it's basically collapsed. And he's told a week before he dies that the Guardian is basically over. And um, so he goes back to this apartment where he's staying, still very sick, um, and also having um, symptoms, as people who were around him would attest, of, you know, wandering, not being able to sleep, um, seeming very confused, um, writing a lot of his friends um, who he had known for years, start to write him letters, urging him, you know, to cheer up. Basically, they realize that he's despondent, um, and he doesn't respond to them. Um, His sister... A, a couple of days before Trotter's birthday, um, manages to save the Guardian. And I'm still not, um, there is no, um, uh, all the research that I did, there is no evidence that it happened, but she agreed to pay another printer. Um, and so the paper would be able to appear. 
Um, and so Maud actually goes and tells him, right, the paper will appear. He goes to Maud's house to go over the proofs on that Friday night. Um, and his sister and her husband basically note that he seemed very disoriented, despondent, very sad. Um, at one point he gets up, got up to go, um, to another room and he hit his head very dramatically on a, on a stove. And basically, I was very disoriented. So they send him back to his room. He goes to sleep. Um, The um, members of the house he's in, the Gibsons, check on him periodically, which is a sign that, you know, they were concerned about his welfare. Um, And then early in the morning, he gets up. The son in the house hears him get up, um, sees, like, his shadow go up the steps, assumes that he's, you know fine because he's made it through the night and then they mm-hmm. hear the side and then he, he he fell um or he fell or he was he was um in the snow on the ground um when they got there he's picked up by the ambulance taken to the hospital and the hospital um would rule that he um he he jumped right and that he was actually um the medical examiner would say he was actually alive when they got and got him and he was just you know in tears and not wanting to be saved um so so um wow um a lot of evidence that it was um, a suicide. Um, I think mm-hmm. just on that point, I would say that, you know, when I wrote the book, I fully expect, you know, people to say, oh, why would you say he's killed himself? He's not kill- killed himself. But I think the resistance to talking about that is kind of the um, resistance that people have to discussing kind of mental illness or the effects of how um, activism can weigh people down. Uh, particularly if you have a long life of activism, um, you know, 30 over 30 years, he's, he's at protests and he's getting arrested and he's, you know, writing letters and he's meeting with Congress people and he's organizing marches. I mean, that's a, that's a long career, um, to exist in. And so I think there's, um, for many people, there's still shame surrounding suicide or mental health mm-hmm. issues. Um, and so I think it, it, um, the denial of what actually happened began right around his death. So the black press immediately reported on it. Um, and, you know, there's telegrams, oh my goodness, Trotter killed himself. That, that was the, the rhetoric. And then Dini, his sister, basically went um, to the press and basically said it wasn't true, that he didn't kill himself. And this was actually after she signed the death certificate that said he did kill himself. But her, <laughs> her public rhetoric was that, oh, no, no, he accidentally fell. Um, Mm -hmm. he, it was snowy, he, um, missed his footing and he fell. And so that then became the narrative that particularly his sister wanted to preserve, which is understandable. I mean, when, when somebody, um, um, takes their own life, often the family can have a, uh, very, um, uh, a reaction that they want to protect the person's privacy and protect the person's, uh, identity. And I would say that that effort was a, fairly successful because she seems to have muddied the waters well enough that a lot of later writers treat what happened as as being unsure yes oh yes and part of the reason she has that ability to sort of curate his memory is because she goes on publishing the guardian for uh how long would she keep publishing the guardian she dies in the late 1950s so she published it up until at least 1957 the last um um uh, edition i found was 1957 However, her um, her husband, Doc Stewart, continued to release issues of The Guardian um, that were still called The Guardian, but they weren't like weekly. They would come out, you know, sporadically. When he dies, he then left the uh, remnants of The Guardian slash the remnants of 
the black newspaper in the city to young people who were founding what became the Bay State Banner. So um, hmm. the um, effort by Dean, uh, by um, his sister Maud and his brother-in-law to um, keep the Guardian going, to um, really protect Monroe's um, um, reputation, they thought, um, because of course they they saw um, suicide as being you know taking away from his reputation. Although we we hopefully know that that's not that's not true nowadays, right? And so um, right. he um, they definitely were involved in sowing seeds of doubt that he had committed suicide within the community. At the moment of his his death, what was his I guess his public image or his his persona? How was he remembered by the black community at at the time of his death? What were the tributes like or the eulogies? How was he remembered at the time? Well, I always when when people ask this on the book stuff, I always point to quotes by everyone from Marcus Garvey, who was in London at the time, to uh, Kelly Miller, who was a black conservative who was no friend of Trotter's, to Du Bois's, to all these people writing in and saying that Trotter was um, was an icon, right? Gar- Marcus Garvey said that he was the most radical Negro that Garvey had ever met. Um, Which is something coming from yes, Marcus Garvey. Um, exactly. Um, Cyril, <laughs> Cyril Briggs, who was a um, a leader in the African Black Brotherhood, said that he was the most, um, the stormy petrol of the time. This is what he calls, called him. He basically said, you know, younger activists owed their activism to him. A. Philip Randolph, um, again, would say that, uh, a. Philip Randolph always said that although he was a fan of Du Bois as a young person, Du Bois he found to be snobby. Uh, <laughs> Trotter he found to be somebody who talked to people and who was really passionate and sincere. Um, his death was covered in the Bahama in newspapers in the Bahamas, in Jamaica, um, in Barbados, in um, Nova Scotia, and so he really there was really this sort of this outpouring of response. And his funeral was actually attended by hundreds of people, mostly black but also white, across Boston. Um, who went to see um, his 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 to attend his funeral and to watch his burial? So um, that in of itself is a testament to his legacy amongst um, a population and a generation of people. That might be a good place to leave it. So, what was his funeral procession or funeral and funeral procession like? So they they actually um, um, it was held at the Twelfth uh, Baptist Church. Um, the lines were, um, went around the block. Um, the, uh, city itself sent in, um, a guard to guard the casket as it made, as it made its way down the street. Um, the most popular newspapers in Boston covered, um, his funeral, um, which was, you know, unheard of for a civilian, never mind a, an African American civilian, um, at right. the time. Um, and uh, tributes came in from um, Du Bois in particular. Du Bois was getting ready to publish an article in the Crisis magazine about um, peace negotiations in the Middle East. So he was really following it. It was like this, this big story. And he got the telegram that Trotter had died and immediately ordered that the cover of the crisis have a picture of Trotter. So this is somebody who, um, you know, they were at odds for most of their lives. Um, he then <laughs> right. ended up and ended up celebrating him and, and, and gave a beautiful tribute in which he, um, you know, talked about um, his difficulties, but also set, argued, Du Bois argued that he basically changed the way 
black people approach themselves and approach politics. Now, do you think for folks who read the book or listen to this interview and look back on the life and times of William Monroe Trotter, are there lessons to take for our current era? Yeah, I think one of the big things to take um, is that change um, to racial and economically and politically unjust systems um, take a long time. Um, that sounds like it would be ed- ed- evident and it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I think that that's one of the things I would take that it's a constant um, struggle and that um, seats of power never concede um, unless they're constantly agitated and that things that um, with agitation and with radicalism often um, it takes constantly agitating for them for things to change. I would also say that I think the most um, relevant for our time is Trotter's dedication to the idea that the press or the media, as you would now call it, needed to be um, independent of any political party, any um, agenda, and that it really needed to be um, exposing the truth, that that was the role of the press, um, that it wasn't to, um, you know, curry favor with anybody. It was to say, you know, something is going on. We're going to pour, uh, report on it as factually as possible. And if, um, you know, people are saying the facts are not correct, we will use facts to dispel um, their misinformation. So I definitely think that is that is relevant for today. And I also think it's, it's relevant kind of looking at Trotter's life asks us to examine how it is that black protest and civil rights looks differently in different contexts. So I say in the book, you know, Massachusetts never had a lynching. It never had, uh, it had a liberal reputation, which at the time, of course, um, was well-deserved. And yet um, racial inequity and racial discrimination was rampant. Um, and so therefore Trotter's approach looked different um, in fighting white supremacy, but it didn't mean that white supremacy didn't exist in the Commonwealth. Well, if people want to learn more about this topic or if they want to follow you, uh, where should they look? Um, I would say buy the book. <laughs> I tried to make it as much. It's a very, I'm, I'm, I always joke with people. I'm like a mass hole at heart. So it has a lot of, <laughs> has a lot of, um, it, it's a Boston book. It's very much about Boston and the city. Um, a hundred percent. Yep. Um, I, given coronavirus, um, a lot of the speaking stuff I was going to do are canceled, but in August I am speaking at, the Edith Wharton House in Lenox, um, where they're having, um, you know, they do a, a, a good job of sort of outlining books that are of, of local and historical significance. So I will be there. And that's the week of August 10th and August 11th. And then I'm on I'm on Twitter um, at uh, Greenwich Carry. Um, and, um, you know, I'll have more stuff in there as well. Well, Carrie Greenwich, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. I've really appreciated the conversation. Well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And thank you for, I really, I'm, my background before I became a stodgy academic was in public history. So I'm somebody who really, I love when people do public history and, and, you know, um, present it to people who are not academics, but who are passionate and interested in history. So thank you. Oh, thanks. To learn more about the life and times of William Monroe Trotter, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 183. We'll have a link to purchase the book Black Radical by Carrie Greenwich, as well as a link to her Twitter. We'll also link to our earlier episodes about Monroe Trotter's fight against the movie Birth of a Nation, my interview with Millington Ferguson Lockwood where we discuss Monroe's father, James Trotter, and some other classic episodes that are related to the conversation. 
And of course, we'll have a link to information about our upcoming Boston History Happy Hour. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.